everyone. Welcome to Better Done Than Perfect, podcast for SaaS marketers and product people. Our awesome guest today is Michael Wilding, marketing automation architect, and we're going to talk about QA for email marketing today. This show is brought to you by Userlist, an email automation platform for SaaS companies. It matches the complexity of your customer data, including many-to-many relationships between users and companies. Book your demo call today at userless.com. Hello, Michael. Hi, hi, nice to be here. We're absolutely thrilled. Uh, and you have a pretty amazing background, which just deserves like 30 minutes of its own. <laughs> Before we dive into quality assurance, tell us more how you even ended up in the email world. Uh, I ended up in the email world, a very circuitous route. I actually originally trained as an actor and then I probably didn't make the cut. So I ended up designing high fashion women's footwear for a while, uh, for quite a long time, which I loved. And finally ended up in the world of digital because I started a website around horse racing, which I love, and that eventually turned into a SaaS platform. And obviously with that website, I had to learn how to build a website, but then eventually how to build a mailing list, email, and how to get emails related to horse racing and that market into people's inboxes. So, all, you know, around, all around the copywriting, deliverability, all those pieces. That's kind of like my journey to email and marketing automation. So these days you work for an agency, like a big respected agency that serves a big respected uh, company in the industry of healthcare. Would that be Correct to say that. That's right. At the moment, I'm working with an agency called Dept, who are uh, a very large global agency. Uh, I'm working with Dept Ireland specifically, so in Ireland. And and yeah, my primary focus is with HSE at the moment, which is the Irish Health Service. When it comes to QA, so the, the way we come across each other is that you gave a very elaborate description of your QA process and how you approve templates at your organization, which involves like 20 stages and 50 people. I'm not sure what exact numbers were. (laughs) It just sounded like you have so much to share. But if we go a bit up, why do people need to bother to do QA for their emails? Isn't just like set and forget and send and like, you know, people make mistakes. Why bother? (laughs) Yeah. Do you know what? I think there's two schools of thought here. I think it's really... I think it's organizational dependent. I mean, like, if it's your own business and you're just starting out, yeah, the QA level required is probably minimal. And then the further down the line you get, the larger the organization, and particularly the more the more specific content needs to be. So when there are, you know, things, for example, about health matters, they've got to be right. Like, so you can't be sending those sorts of things out with incorrect information. So the level of QA kind of can progress really like that so depending where you are in that quite wide spectrum you know i think it's definitely for certain organization startups as i say like solopreneurs people just getting started i think at all levels you want some form of qa but again it can be quite minimal like at at the bare minimum 
I would always say you want to read your emails out loud to yourself because as a basic QA process, it does two things, I find. First of all, you hear mistakes. And secondly, when you speak it out loud, you hear how it sounds inside someone's head. So it's conversational, but you don't often get that when you just read it. You only get it when you speak it. I'd love to say that I actually came up with that and I didn't come up with that. I've never done it in my life, honestly. (laughs) You should give it a try. It changes how you understand someone's going to read the email. It was actually taught to me by an excellent copywriter when they were working for Agora as one of the ways that they did a basic QA on their copy was to understand how someone was going to read it. You have to speak it out loud because people are speaking it in their heads. So yeah, it's interesting. You'll, you'll find it, you'll find if you try it, you'll find it. It sounds different when you speak it out loud. <laughs> like you'll read it differently. Among other fields, email marketing has probably like the wild west underdeveloped everything. <laughs> for example, for publishing articles, we have like established workflows. We have editors. We have Google Docs with suggested edits. And, you know, for developers, we have version control and oh, other amazing things. Yeah. None of that in the email world. What do you feel of like the tools and and the processes that are available to us? Yeah, I think Wild West is a good description, probably, is the word I was looking for. So I think the tools available to us can do amazing things. But from a QA perspective, they're bad. (laughs) I don't think there's any other way of putting it. They're just bad. They're subpar across pretty much everything else. I mean, there is no official way of version control. You can't version control. Even the platforms that give you dev uh, dev platforms and you know, possibly variants of staging or pre-prod or whatever for marketing automation before production, there's still no easy way of flowing workflows and automations between those stages. Like, you know, you've got to kind of manually export, but then quite often you can't be sending from the same IPs or the same emails across their, you know, their versions. So there is no real good way of, of that. Like QAing is manual, pretty much. It's a manual. Every step of the way is manual. Whereas, as you say, in most other fields, there is tools that support that, that process. Those processes make it simpler, make it simpler to roll back as well. Not just about checking, but also like when you make mistakes, being able to roll backwards on those mistakes. Again, there's basic stuff. But it's not, it's not at the level that you would get either for graphics, you know, as you say, content creation frameworks, things like that, or either on the flip side when you're talking about kind of development and developer side of stuff. Yeah. So it's the, it is the Wild West. And I guess that comes with pros and cons, you know, like, so there's always benefits. What are the pros? I'm just... <laughs> Like, do you know what? I think the pros are is that actually if you're a small company or you're a young organization, you're starting up, it, there are, it's affordable. It can be rapid. Like you can do stuff so fast. There are workarounds for almost everything because you've got to use workarounds anyway in a lot of situations with automation. So, like, so actually you have the ability or you have the benefit of agility, I should say. You can go really, really fast if you want to. And of course, Things get left behind when you do that (laughs) and you will make mistakes. But in those situations, it's normally fine. So let's talk about your experience in those complex industries and big companies. QA is a big bureaucratic process. 
who's the project manager of this? Who is the person responsible for like talking to every 20 stakeholders who do the testing? So there will always be a project manager. And again, organization dependent, you might have a, a specific QA project manager uh, mm. as well. But not always. Sometimes it's just it's the project manager for the entire campaign or that piece of the comms or depending on how it's broken up within the organization, it, it might be the PM who's, run it, who's running that. If it works like that, then within a team, you would probably have a marketing automation lead who is supporting on that as well as the QA lead as well. So working side by side, depending on where in the QA process you are, are you QAing workflows, automations, or are you QAing content creatives within, within the emails? So let's split those levels. We do have QA for the automations, which let's touch slightly later. Then we have the emails themselves, and then the emails themselves have the design slash layout slash template that needs to be tested. And then there is the copy and the imagery mm -hmm. that changes up from one to another, but still resides within the template. How does it all live together? So normally we start with the template design, of course, maybe in Figma, whatever, by, by the designers. And that's the first QA piece. So uh, and that will be done by uh, the client, um, depending if you're working, like obviously I can't be working with an agency. So if you're working with an agency, that's going to be QA by the client and the designers. So it will go across those two. If you're going to be doing this internally for yourself, then obviously that will be slightly different, but it's the same principle. And once that's been signed off, and again, like I think the important thing actually, if you have a designer working, is that either the designer has experience of designing emails specifically, or is working closely with whoever's creating those emails, the HTML or whatever, so they understand the nuances of email design specifically. Otherwise, what you find is you go past that QA process of design but then you can't actually implement it or not in a way that's going to work properly. So, and then you're back to design again. So you get through that stage of the QA and the design, and then that gets signed off. Now at that point, you've got your design as your source of truth, I guess, from a creative perspective, from a visual perspective, that's your source of truth. And then the QA, whoever is doing the QA, uh, the QA team or QA person will be using that as their source of truth when they are looking at the template. So then the template gets created. Personally, I like to have a base template created that contains all possible modules. When I say modules, I mean elements within it, uh, blocks, however you might want to, whatever phrase you want to use. But I like to have it containing all of those as pieces. And that's so that that can be signed off across by, by the client. That can be signed off as an entire piece across all devices. So again, the mobile responsiveness of all the elements is done because then I like to break those elements out into blocks so they can be reused. So as they're signed off, we're kind of saving them as blocks. It's signed off. We can then save each of these pieces as blocks. Now they can be reused. We know they're going to work. We know the template is going to work. We know the blocks are going to work. All of these pieces are now functional. So now we can actually create emails at quite a rapid pace. So that base template We'll use a, a tool, Litmus, Acid, something like that, to test that template. And again, when working as an agency uh, with the client, first of all, we would test that internally as the agency. That would be QA'd internally. So that would be get checked against the designs 
in every client against both, you know, kind of a desktop and mobile version, as it were, in every client. And it may be that we're using every single client, or it may be that we're using the most important ones. When I say clients, so email clients, it depends very much on who you're doing it for. But that process happens for the visuals, for the creative, all the way through. And when that's been done, that's signed off on our side, we then go to the client and the process is repeated. And it's really important, I think, when it goes off to the client and it's repeated that there are multiple people QA. You may have multiple people on your side as well. Internally in the agency, in an ideal world, you would always have, I always like to have more than one person QA because it's so manual. It's really easy to miss things. Um, and the same on the other side. So again, so we're talking about multiple levels of sign-off here. And the purpose of that is what you really want at the end of this is you want to try and reduce the amount of work to be done on each individual email. Because there is like some stuff is likely to, to break or not quite work or whatever. But by putting in that time on the base template at that level, you get away from 90 plus percent of the issues that you may face if you don't do it further down the line. But further down the line, if something changes, you might have to change 10, 50, 100, 100 emails that you've already done. So uh, the purpose is to avoid that, essentially. That's what we want to avoid. Let me interrupt you for a second. Yeah. So you have a team of seasoned email developers who can have engineered hundreds of templates in their life, and they put something together. What kind of mistakes do you end up finding usually? Like, what are the examples? It's the silly stuff. Like, it's the stuff where, like, it should work and it just doesn't. Like, Outlook, as everyone knows, Outlook, the joy. The stuff that just breaks there. Like, you think you've catered for it, and then you haven't for some unknown reason. Um, And again, I guess it depends as whether whether you're using a tool or whether you're coding raw HTML. Like, if you're just writing raw HTML, possibly less. If you're using a tool... To make the HTML, you're going to get those a bit more. So examples, email size, hitting email size limits. You know, if you've got too many tables or rows or whatever it might be, hitting some of the quirks around styled lists. If you've got styled lists displaying differently across different versions of Outlook, custom list styles. I'd say those are probably the most common one that we see cropping up all the time is certain versions of Outlook image widths. Like it might be 600 pixels, but they're just shaving off two pixels for some unknown reason. Like, so it's not quite in alignment with the other blocks. So things like that mainly. Yeah, those are the biggest things. Occasionally issues around borders, things like that. It's nothing crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's nothing like beyond the realms of normality. It's just human. It's just human, basically. It's just normal, day-to-day human error. Let's shortcut on the copy editing flows because, I mean, it's, I'm assuming, similar to other publishing flows in that said company. Yeah, yeah. Because I just would love to spend more time talking about QA for actual automations and how in the world you ever know that they're working right given the software we have today. Yeah. So, I mean, I do it a couple of ways. So, again, depending on size of organization, like you might be building this out on a staging environment for the platform, if the platform has a staging environment. Personally, 
I like to build out of the staging environment if I can, because that reduces the risk that you drop a bunch of people into it by mistake, which I, I have done myself and I have seen people do in the past. Or, or you apply, depending on the platform you're using, you apply a tag or something else that you didn't realize or forgot was live within something you're testing. and It shifts a whole bunch of people in there automatically or whatever. So my preference is always to build on a, a sandbox with staging if you can. In terms of QA and the actual process, it's the, the way I tend to work is it's very manual and it involves quite a lot of people. And it's very, I'm not really going to the technicals because the technical is really dependent on the platform. So how you have to manage it is very dependent on the platform and whether that platform allows you to force people through workflows or not. So for example, like you've got a workflow that goes for six months and some platforms may be able to f- allow you to see when people are being held and then force them on to the next stage automatically. Whereas other platforms may not allow you to do that. And actually you then have to create uh, custom fields or again, depending on the platform, custom tables. Sometimes I have test tables where I put custom fields in so that I can actually change settings specifically to force people through. The key that I try to do is I try to build the automations in such a way. So when I create the automations, I'm not just thinking about how does this work to push people through. I'm also thinking about how can I build this so I can also test it and it will work in production. So I put that structure in place, that testing structure in place while building it. So I'm thinking about that from the very beginning. So it's not just going like, I don't know, we've got a really simple one and it just sends people emails and they split at various points, maybe, you know, there's two different types of various points. I'll be thinking at the very beginning, I'll be thinking, okay, so this is based on a specific date, but not a time from when you join the list, like actual dates in your life. Like it might be specific dates in your life. And obviously they're going to change for each person. So what I will do when I'm building the, the actual automation is I'll be thinking, how am I going to be able to force QA testing accounts through this without needing to change the automations once we've done it? So we know it's working. So what I do is I might build extra code in so that says, okay, you flow through normally. I can see it's working. And now you come to the next bit. The simplest example would be, Now I'm going to apply a tag. That tag literally forces you to the next step. That's like the simplest version of it. So it's like a testing tag that then makes you jump specifically to the next step so you don't have to wait eight months for the next date to arrive. And I don't have to change specific date fields or whatever. So where I can do that, I build that out. And obviously that's the most simple and it can build and get more and more complex. But the goal is always to make sure that I plan that from the beginning or the team plans that from the beginning so we can test it without having to edit workflows after the QA process and potentially reintroduce bugs. So you keep all the conditions and everything in the workflow intact. Mm. But by introducing like artificial tags, you are essentially running the workflow on your artificial data. So when that data is not in place, your real condition might, might not work as well. Good question. Good theory. Because yeah. I know sometimes you can add like so, extra triggers, extra something conditions. Those can yeah. work, but then the original ones won't. How do you know? The original ones won't work. <laughs> Absolutely. So I will also do, so coming back to the stages of QAing, I guess is quite important here. So 
what we will do is we'll do usually two stages of QA for workflows. Is the first one will be something like we've just spoken about. I I want to be able to force you through it in this way so I can see the big pieces are moving, stuff is working, all of those things. The pieces that you're talking about now, where actually you need that event to happen, again, depending on the event, depending on how that event is fired, could be anything from if I have to go into a table and edit the field, I'll go into a table and edit the field. That's kind of way down my pecking list. (laughs) I'd rather not do that. If I can design it in any other way to stop that, I will. Um, most often, I guess we'll fire events in. So if I can, if the data that's triggering it is coming from a feed, that's my preference because then actually that feed can be happening in real time as it would fired by developers or by myself or whoever, depending on the team, which actually allows you to test in real. So I, th- I think... One of the pieces here is that actually, and again, this is if you have, I guess, the team, the size, the scale to be able to do this, is if I can trigger stuff through calls, external calls coming in, API calls or whatever it may be coming in, as I guess you would do with quite a lot with SaaS platforms, that's my preferred way because you can pretty much always test that as it would happen in real. For the QA. Except for the time frame. Except for the time frame. I mean, anything to do with time frames, yeah. I mean, you basically always got to change the date, unfortunately. <laughs> or <laughs> have a, tri- a tag or something to push people through. Although having said that, of course, you can use Postman, for example, to, to push an event call in. And the event call can be real. You can hold it in Postman. And then you can just change the time frame within Postman. So it's still coming into the platform as it would, but you've just changed it before hitting the platform. Mm -hmm. So it would be real. But yeah, at some point, you've got to do a manual intervention, pretty much. The shortcut for mere mortals would be to have a workflow put together, but shorten the delays so that everything can be tested more rapidly. Is that correct to say? Yeah, absolutely. Shorten the delays Mm -hmm. down to one minute, five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever, whatever works for you. That's an easy way to do it. I guess if I do that, what I tend to do is I actually tend to write it on paper. Again, sounds really stupid, but I actually write on paper each one down that I've changed, and then I cross them out as I change them back. Because again, if you have lots of nodes or whatever on your screen, it's really easy just to skip over one by mistake because you think you've done it, or you something happens and you zoom out, or you zoom in, and then you find yourself back on the, on on the, on the workflow somewhere. And you're like, eh, I did it. I've got to go back and check every single one now because I've just moved. A little bit, particularly if it's a complex workflow. So I tend to just write it on a piece of paper in a list and then cross them out one by one as they're done and saved. And I will also always, for that reason, save after each edit because I don't want to have to go back and check every single one again. I wish we had another couple hours to go into the details because this is fascinating. But as we're wrapping up today's episode, what does one do and one don't when it comes to QA? both for emails themselves and the workflows? One do, I think, is you should always do some form of QA, even if it's just speaking the copy out loud, like checking it in the preview before you send it. Sending yourself a test, I think, I'm coming back. I think the one do is send yourself a test. Always send yourself a test. And the one don't is, I think, 
don't get stressed by it. I, I see quite a lot of people getting really worked up by the QAs, and particularly when you've got an extended QA process and it can take long. So stuff breaks, and stuff isn't 100% consistent. Like the testing tools, like the limuses and the things in the asset, they're not, consi- they're not 100% consistent. You can send an email in once, and it looks great, and then the next one you come in, stuff's there that wasn't there before that wasn't quite right. So don't get stressed by that. It's just to iteratively go through each one at a time. And if it's an extended process, make sure the team around you understands that actually to have this level of confidence or security within the creative and the content, by definition, because it's manual, it's going to take time because it has to go through numerous people because people make mistakes. And actually, if you don't go through numerous people, there's likely to be an error in there. Thanks so much for sharing your hard-learned wisdom with us today. (laughs) Where can people find uh, you personally online? Where can they read more of what you write and see what things you do? Probably the best places to find me are, well, obviously I'm working with Debt Agency at the moment, so uh, Debt Agency Island, so you'll find me there, but probably LinkedIn is the best place to find me outside of that. Amazing. Well, thanks so much once again and have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you, Jane. You too. Thanks for listening. You can find a written recap for this episode at userless.com slash podcast. Please help us grow by leaving a review on iTunes. <laughs>